Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 131 of the Book Cougars, Two Middle-Aged Women on the Hunt for a Good Read. I'm Emily. And I'm Chris. We have a lot to talk about today. I think we're going to start with our big books of the summer. Well, yes, our one big book each of the summer. Right. I'm saying books plural because we actually had two listeners let us know what their picks are. Awesome. Yeah. Should I start with those? Yeah, I want to hear. I know. I, it's amazing because of, well, amazing. Like I know every book in the world, but it's two books that I'd never heard of. So Aunt Ellen let us know that she's hoping to tackle Wanderers by Chuck Wendig. Huh. And this bad boy is over 800 pages. Wow. Yeah. Very cool. I've not heard of that one. Me either. I read about it briefly. It's about a rock star and a, it looks like a big epic book. I'm looking forward to hearing about that. And then Rose let us know that she's going to be tackling The Adventures of Augie March by Saul Bellow. Oh, nice. And that one's over 500 pages. Wow. So. Now he's a writer I haven't read yet. I haven't read anything. No know a lot about him, but haven't read him. So what about you? Are you ready to unveil your big book of the summer? I am. This is my big book. I have a stack, but this is the one that I have been thinking about reading for quite a while. I picked it up. Gosh, where did I get this one? I think I got this up in Middletown at the Wesleyan RJ Julia. I think this is where I got it. I am going to be reading Bleak House by Charles Dickens. So this one is 866 pages. And, you know, most of Dickens' novels are pretty thick. I don't think I've read a novel by him since high school when we read Great Expectations. And I've read more Wilkie Collins, and I've heard people say that you're either into the Wilkie Collins camp or the Charles Dickens camp. And sometimes they feud. I'm not sure if that's true or not. That could just be a British person thing. <laughs> well, and I know you are a fan of Wilkie Collins. Yeah, so it'll be I do like Wilkie. Yeah. So, uh, Bleak House, it was serialized. I think all of Dickens' books were in 1852 to 53. But wow. it's considered one of his most critically acclaimed novels. And I thought I'd give it a shot. It's about a legal case between family members. So... You might like it, Emily. I know you like legal stuff. I do. Ooh, I'll I'll be curious to know if it's like trials and things like that, or if it's just talking about their discontent with each other. (laughs) You know how I've been watching the Emily Dickinson, the TV series on Apple TV? There was one episode where the brother and sister were reading Bleak House and like, they're like, oh my God, is so-and-so gonna do blah, blah, blah. And I thought, oh my God, that's so great. I'm going to be reading that soon. Do you feel like you got any spoilers or no? No, I don't. Okay. You know, they were saying character names and none of it yeah. made anything. Yeah. So cool. I want to hear about yours. Well, let's see if I can lift mine. <laughs> I have decided I'm going to read Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy. And this is very similar to my Shantaram story because I have a bookmark in it at page 278. And then I never finished. So I originally was reading it with an old book club of mine. This book is 900 plus pages. And we had decided we were going to read 100 pages a month for a year. Oh, wow. And then some overachievers in my book club, like read the whole thing the first month and wanted (laughs) to talk about it. (laughs) And then I started reading it and listening to it. 
And, you know, Tolstoy, the names of the characters are a page long, and then they have nicknames, and I got totally confused with the audio and decided I needed to just stick to reading it instead, Mm -hmm. but never went back to it. So I'm going to start from page one. And, you know, we're doing this for Sue Jackson's big summer book challenge. And she, when I was communicating with her, she's reading Anna Karenina as well. That's awesome. Yeah, she asked for a copy for Mother's Day and got it. So now I kind of feel like I'm doing it for the book challenge and slightly as a buddy read. So I have yeah, more enthusiasm to open it up. Well, I'm holding up my copy of Anna Karenina, (laughs) which I got out because I too had been reading it once upon a time and had to put it down for some reason and never got back to it. I had read up to part four, which in my edition was page 404. um, And out of it fell and it just fell again. I'm holding up to Emily, my borders receipt. Oh, that's amazing. So, uh, this is from 2007. So, wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I stopped right before part three in my book, which is page okay. 303. So, the one thing I will say about this is it's got good large print. That's great. Which I'm really excited about. Yeah. And I might try to poke around and find an audio and do a little bit of both. We'll see. I wasn't successful with the audio last time, but. When are you thinking you're going to start it? I haven't decided that. Okay. Maybe I'll see what Sue's plan is. Okay. Um, what about you? Are you going to start right away? No, I'm not. I think I might start in July. Okay. I think. I'm not sure yet, but I definitely, you know, I was thinking like, well, maybe August, but I thought, no, if I wait for August, then I might feel pressure because classes start again on September 1st. Yeah. So I think beginning of July might be a good time. Yeah. So reminder to listeners that that Sue's challenge stretches from Memorial Day, which is actually today is the day we're recording is Memorial Day through Labor Day. Yeah. So those of you who are not in the U.S., that's September 6th this year, I think. I think so. Yeah. yeah. So join in. The the only requirement is the book needs to be 400 pages or more. You, You can participate officially via Sue's blog or on her Goodreads page. And I know she does a giveaway at the end of the challenge, and I won it one year, which was fun. We just love the idea of sinking into a big book, and everybody wants to read a big book. Well, not I shouldn't say everybody. I did recently find out that one of my friends has a 250-page limit when it comes to novels. What? Yes. So not everyone. I should be careful with my language. <laughs> A lot of us have these big honking books on our shelves that we want to get to someday. And what I like about Sue's challenge is that it it builds a sense of excitement and kind of camaraderie. And you can dip in. The hashtag is Big Book Summer. She's on Twitter and Instagram. And uh, so it's just a fun way to tackle a big book. And just kind of have an encouraging community. Even if you're not all reading the same book, you kind of can feel like you're all rising to some challenge of a book that's been sitting on your shelf or go out and buy something new. We highly encourage that as well. Yep, exactly. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Just because we've announced our reads today on this episode, don't be shy to keep telling us what you're reading. We really do want to know. You can email us or call our phone number. Yes. We have a special phone number these days. Yes. The hotline. Should we give that hotline number? We probably should. Sure. I have it in my handy dandy book, Cougar's Notebook. That number is 
391-6674. Right on. Give us a call. Yes. We have a big thank you to give. We do. We have a new Patreon sponsor, our friend Jen from Ohio, my old stomping grounds. Thank you so much, Jen, for your support. Thank you, Jen. It means so much to us. It really does. Absolutely. So, Chris, what are you currently reading? You know, I'm currently reading a book. It's a really good book so far. The author is having a bit of a controversy going on. But this is a book that was on my radar for quite a while because so many people were really buzzing it up, including Roxanne Gay. The book is Leaving Isn't the Hardest Thing by Lauren Howe, H-O-U-G-H. This just came out in April of this year through Vintage. Thanks to NetGalley and Vintage for allowing me to have an advanced reader copy. The controversy is that Lauren called out some people on Goodreads who weren't giving her book five stars. So she was like, <laughs> the fucking book deserves five stars. And she swears a lot. So my languaging is quite appropriate in that sentence. Cause that's kind of almost a direct quote. And, you know, a lot of people are upset about that, including other authors who are just like, dude, you know, don't go on to Goodreads and look at reviews, just let it go. So I went on to Goodreads just to kind of see what the latest status is of her ranking on Goodreads, there are 4,780 ratings at 2.29 stars. Oh, wow. Yes. However, on Amazon, there are 386 ratings and it's at 4.5 stars. So I think this is a great example of showing like when a controversy brews on a particular site, the damage gets done on that Mm -hmm. particular site, as opposed to people who are not on Twitter or Goodreads and don't know what's going on. Because that's where I've mainly seen the conversations happening about it. It's a memoir written through a collection of essays about her experience. She grew up in a cult, the Children of God cult. She was a lesbian in the military and had a really horrific experience there. She's done a lot of different odd jobs. And the writing is really engaging. I mean, that first essay sucked me right in. Because for a while, I was thinking like, oh, do I want to read it? I don't know how I feel about the whole controversy. I thought I am going to read it. Because I had heard so many people talking about how great the writing is. Yeah. I talked about this many episodes ago. And I think I even read to you, there's a piece where she comes out to her sister, who's her older sister. And it's really funny, because the older sister was like, I knew it all along, you know, (laughs) and Lauren's like, Oh, gosh, as long as your sister thinks she's right, all's good in the world, you know. She's a great writer and she she's funny on Twitter and part of me when the controversy kind of came up I was wondering if it was almost a ploy just to get attention for the book. Mm-hmm. What do you think of that? Do you think that could be part of it? I think it could be. It could be. I mean, she seems to be a very, you know, direct kind of person and she's mm-hmm. on Twitter a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, I think the thing is like people who are more casual or periodic Twitter users might have a very different reaction than to people who are regularly on Twitter when it comes to something like this. Right. Because there is a lot of back and forth. Mm -hmm. And I can't imagine any writer would actually think their book needs five stars from every single reader. So part of me does think maybe it was just a bit of, quote, fun. And sarcasm. 
too. Right. I mean, it's hard to read sarcasm. So mm-hmm. it could have been that that's part of what she was doing with Twitter. Yeah. As well. well, I think the thing is, though, I think what upset some people is that she kind of attacked mm-hmm. people who reviewed it. And that crossed a line for a lot of people. Yeah, that's not funny. Yeah. I'm so glad you're reading it. I'm still reading the essays. I'm, I'm probably about three quarters of the way through. So okay. yeah, she's yeah. a great writer. I'm reading Hieroglyphics by Joe McCorkle. And I literally just started this last night, actually kind of at three in the morning when I couldn't sleep. (laughs) um, And so far, it's written from different points of view. And the opening is a woman who's living in a house by herself in the South in North Carolina. And a man comes to the door, and she's kind of talking to him through, you know, the chain being attached to the door. So the woman, she's kind of talking to this man who's pulled up in front of her house in a car. She's got the chain on the door, as you would if a stranger comes to your door. Her son is back in the house somewhere. And the man, Frank, starts to explain to her that he grew up in this house and he'd love a chance to walk around inside. And out in the car is his wife who's waving. And that's as far as I've gotten. So it's intriguing. I've met Jill McCorkle at a Booktopia years ago when she was there talking about a short story collection of hers. And she's the author I've talked about before that she talks about when she writes a short story, she has all these characters in the short story, and then she slowly starts to peel them away as she refines Mm -hmm. the story. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was such a fascinating way of like, she as the author needs to be informed about these characters, but they don't necessarily need to stay in the story. Yeah, that's really cool. I remember you talking about that. Yeah. So she's a great writer. This is a novel. This is not a set of short stories. Um, And again, it's called Hieroglyphics by Jill McCorkle. All right. So what have you just read? I finished the book I was talking about on the last episode, Halsey Street by Naima Koster. I was reading this for my bi-coastal book club, and I'm not sure I would have stuck with it, to be honest with you, if it wasn't that I knew we would be discussing it, because I was really curious to see what my fellow readers thought of it. It's her debut novel. I did read her sophomore novel, which I enjoyed, but this one was kind of the classic debut novel where you feel like, wow, she tried to put in everything into one book. You know, there was a lot going on, and some of it wasn't quite all the way thought out or tidied up, you know, by the end of the book. But it's about Penelope, who goes back to Bed-Stuy, the neighborhood she grew up in, where her father owned a bookstore back in the day. And now there's been a lot of gentrification. The books, I'm sorry, did I say bookstore? Well, that just goes to show you what kind of stores I like. I'm sorry, it was a record store. (laughs) He owned a record store. (laughs) And married to a woman, Penelope's mother, who's from the Dominican Republic. So there are scenes where she, Penelope and her mother, go to visit family back in the Dominican Republic, which I really liked. I mean, her writing is great. It was just that there was too much going on in the book. And she moves in with this white family in their attic apartment. Apartment. She ends up, well, I don't want to tell, give too many spoilers. She, okay. She's not very likable, Penelope. She's growing up and making some choices that I had a hard time bearing witness to. And then in the house is a young girl who's four years old, no, in fourth grade, I'm sorry. And some of the dialogue between the young girl just was not believable. Like there's a scene where she says, aren't most leases 12 months long? 
And I'm like, no fourth grader is going to know about what a lease is, let alone how long a lease is. Anyway, I'm being very picky, but Penelope's also an artist, and that kind of wasn't really very well developed in the book. So again, there was a lot going on with it. It was an interesting story, a lot of different parts to it, but a little bit too much in one novel, I felt like. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Halsey Street by Naima Koster. All right. Well, and I finished the book I talked about last time is uh, my current read last episode. And that is Last Night at the Telegraph Club by Melinda Lowe. I love this book. I guess it's technically considered a young adult novel. Hmm. I didn't really know that while I was reading it. And I don't think that necessarily matters. It is about a young girl. She's high school age who is coming to realize she's a lesbian. So it's a coming of age novel. And so she is a Chinese American girl who lives in Chinatown, San Francisco. And I don't want to give any spoilers on this at all, but it's set in the fifties and it goes back in time a little bit to the forties, maybe even late thirties with some of her uh, parents stories and one of her aunts, but it deals a lot with, being a high schooler and coming to realize that you're different than all of your peers and starting to see other people differently. It also has the theme in it of girls interested in math and science and the struggle for that. Her aunt is a very educated woman who I think she works at the jet propulsion lab, I believe. So she has that support, you know, she's beginning to realize like, Oh, my aunt not only has a cool job, she understands what I could possibly be going through. So it is a beautiful novel about a young girl. And there's also the issue of McCarthyism going on. Her mom was born in California. Her dad immigrated from China. He fought in the war, World War II, for the Americans and became a naturalized citizen that way. But then with the rise of McCarthyism, his loyalties are being questioned because China, which had been an ally, is now an enemy because of the rise of communism. And what's kind of cool with within, it's not necessarily every chapter, but every now and then there's a timeline that intersperses actual historical, I'm holding it up for Emily to see, it has actual historical oh, that's cool. yeah. events mentioned on it, and then also what's going on with the characters, which I thought was neat. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's particularly cool since it's a YA novel because it's educational as exactly. well, but not like in your face educational, just like a little taste. It is. Yeah. It's really, it's like lived that history is lived. Yeah. It, it is something that happened to people in the past, but it was actually people living it. Yeah. It makes me sad though, the theme of female scientists, that that's still an issue today. Yeah. Getting exactly. better, hopefully. But, yes. Yeah. So again, that's last night at the Telegraph Club by Melinda Lowe, and I totally recommend it. It's a really good read. Sounds great. I finished Unsettled Ground by Claire Fuller. I've never read one of her novels. She's a British novelist. It's been shortlisted for the Women's Prize in Fiction. It's about 51-year-old twins, Jeannie and Julius, who still live in a house with their mother, Dot. And the very opening scene of the book, so this is not a spoiler, is their mother, Dot, dies. 
And the opening scene really grabs you because she's having a stroke, you know, and you're kind of experiencing it along with her. And after she passes away, Jeannie and Julius have been living in this cottage kind of on the land of a wealthy man in his mansion, but they're in this little cottage in the back. And they're early on in their lives, their father died and he died because of an accident that happened as he was farming the land. And so an agreement was made that the family would be able to stay and live there at no charge. The landowner agreed to that. But after their mom dies, all these secrets start to be unearthed, that she owed people money, and she was actually in tremendous debt. And Jeannie and Julius, they don't really have careers. They're not making a living. And so the title, Unsettled Ground, the whole book is really unsettling. And it's unsettling because they're trying to make ends meet. They're trying to find a place to live. It's a really unsettling book in general. A lot of secrets, as happens with families. And then when someone passes away, you find out who knew some of the secrets and who didn't. And I really liked her writing. And it was the whole book was very unsettling to read. So I was kind of mesmerized by the title as well. I'm interested to read some of her other books. I think you've read. Yeah, Bitter Orange. Yeah, that was another unsettling novel with uncomfortable scenes and situations. I really liked it. It's kind of gothic-y. And that deals too with a a woman who was kind of orphaned. I think her dad had died when she was really young or was never in the picture. And the mother passes away and she's kind of left to fend for herself as an adult. But she is a writer and goes to this old estate on the countryside that is now crumbling you know it's post-war and she's living there with this couple a man and a woman and i'll say no more but i really enjoyed that book and has a cool cover the u.s edition is actually i think really cool well in the u.s edition of this book just came out it's been out in the uk for a while but yeah i really liked it and it makes me want to read some of her other books but it is unsettling yeah (laughs) (laughs) Unsettled Ground by Claire Fuller. All right. Well, I'm getting back into reading some short stories. This was a a bit of a longer short story called Life in the Iron Mills by Rebecca Harding Davis. It came out in 1861 and made a huge splash. It was published, oh my gosh, in the Atlantic Monthly. Now I don't remember. I'm second guessing myself on that. But this was her debut piece that was published and it really caused a stir And helped really, I don't know if it kicked off literary realism in America, but it definitely spurred that movement on about writing about real life in a very honest way, stripping off the romance. Life in the Iron Mills, it's set in Wheeling, West Virginia, which back then I don't think it was West Virginia. I think it was just Virginia. It's about a man and a woman who are working in the mill, in the iron mill. Again, this is so the 1850s and how much steel was needed. So these mills are going 24, almost 7. They are closed on Sunday, but somebody has to work to keep the fires going, a little bit at least. 
And it's awful. Like the conditions are horrendous. The environmental conditions within the mill are horrendous. And throughout the whole town, they're horrendous because all this smoke and suit is going everywhere and everything is just covered in, you know, the suit, uh, soot. 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 (laughs) (laughs) The suits had soot. That's what I remember that. So I, I had read this years ago. And I wanted to reread it now because I'm going to be going through Wheeling, West Virginia. And before that, I'm actually stopping and spending the night in Washington, Pennsylvania, which is where Rebecca Harding Davis was born. But then she spent most of her growing up years in Wheeling, West Virginia. So, I mean, this book really grabbed the nation's attention about the plight of the workers. And it really kind of took to task this whole notion that in America, anyone can make it. And it showed the extreme conditions that workers faced and the prejudice and the classism. The word caste is even used, which I thought was really interesting. Not a word I used to pay attention to until Wilkerson's new book. Isabel Wilkerson. Isabel Wilkerson. Yeah, Yeah. sorry. Yeah, that's Yeah. Yeah. It's a shocker. And and reading it again, I probably read it like 30 years ago. And I think the older I get, the more sensitivity or compassion I think I have. I mean, back then, oh, how horrible. But I was a little bit more removed because I had less life experience, I think. Sure. So this story is in a collection called Life in the Iron Mills and Other Stories. It was initially edited by Tilly Olson, who is credited as kind of rediscovering Rebecca Harding Davis. And that was a big movement that started in the 1970s, was reclaiming, recovering earlier American women writers. And this edition that I have is uh, has a new forward by Kim Kelly. So more to come on that because I plan on reading the other stories in here as well. As I say, we'll look forward to your Biblio adventure too. Yeah, I can't so, wait. Yeah. Well, and the thing is, reading this after reading Milltown, mm-hmm. and then after reading Braiding Sweetgrass, it's it, it's a good reminder of how long fights have been going on and and how environmental challenges are changing because in Rebecca Harding Davis's day, it was blatantly obvious that there is a shitload of pollution in the Mm -hmm. environment. In Milltown, the pollutants were invisible and causing just as much wreckage and carnage on human life and the environment. Well, and there's the question of how invisible was it really? It wasn't invisible to some people. They knew about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, think, but the yeah. people in the area maybe didn't know right. what was going on. Yeah. 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 So again, that's Life in the Iron Mills by Rebecca Harding Davis. Well, Biblio Adventures, I did not have any. Emily, did you? I had one. I listened to our buddy, John Valeri, our mystery man on his central booking, which you can find on YouTube. And I will put a link in the show notes. Episode 57, the delightful Laura Toma playwright was on, Woo-hoo. who happens to be Chris's wife as well. Laura was also on the book Cougars recently. And um, we were on central booking on episode seven way back in the day. And I'll put links to all of that in the show notes. But it was a great interview. 
John does a lot of written interviews in Criminal Element and is it Mystery, Mystery Scene? Mystery Scene, yeah, in yeah. other ma- magazines. Yeah, I mean, we can attest since we've been on the other side of his questions that they're very thought-provoking, very interesting. And our friend Heather Harper Ellett has been on. I mean, he's got some great folks as guests on Central Booking. So highly recommend that you subscribe to Central Booking and give it a listen and a watch. I mean, their videos, I watch them, but I often find that I'm listening more than watching. It's kind of a funny thing. That's just the way my brain works. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that was a fun episode for sure. And two of my favorite people together yes. talking about creativity <laughs> and, and writing. You can't beat it. Yeah. Very good. And I don't know if I said Laura's new play Magpie is available for purchase now. Yeah. It just came out in April from Next Stage Press. So... We'll put a link in the show notes if you're interested in getting a copy. And then if you do get a copy and you read it and you like it, please leave a review because that is very helpful. And the reviews are right on the the publisher's website. Congratulations to Laura. Really great. And then I also watched an interview with Robin Wall Kimmerer, who is the author of Braiding Sweetgrass, in conversation with Terry Tempest Williams and Richard Powers through Harvard. Oh, this was a powerful conversation. And I talk about it a little bit in our conversation with Jenny from Reading Envy, which is coming up. So I won't go into detail except to say, wow, (laughs) three heavy hitters. It was sold out when they were introducing them. The gentleman who introduced said, if we had known, we would have put this in a much bigger auditorium. It's funny to me that they didn't think that so many people would show up. These are three people who write about the environment, are very astute and have a lot of knowledge. And to see them talking together was wonderful. After reading Braiding Sweetgrass, I I feel like I'm going to try to watch a lot of different things that Robin Walkimer has participated in because I love her voice and I think she's so knowledgeable. Yeah, I'm definitely going to watch that conversation. Yeah, so check the show notes for a link on that. So, Emily, upcoming Johns, what's on your calendar? I only have our big Jungle Red Writers event on June 10th. We really want you to join us. All you have to do is email us, bookcougars at gmail.com, and you'll get that super special Zoom link so you can join us that evening. We're going to be in conversation with all seven of the Reds, Julia Spencer Fleming, Lucy Burdett, Hallie Efron, Reese Bowen, Hank Philippi Ryan, Deborah Crombie, Jen McKinley. I made the mistake of announcing on episode 130 that I was going to create a bookshop.org page with all of their books. And when I told Hank I was going to do that, she said, you do know Reese has over 50 books. (laughs) She said, how about if I reach out to each of the authors and ask them for two books that they want to go on the bookshop.org page? And I was like, wow, Hank, thank you for saving me from myself. I was going to say, when you announced that, I thought you were a little... uh... I mean, I saluted you, but yeah. That was... <laughs> or over-enthusiastic, perhaps. So yeah, I need people in my life to bring me back down to earth. So thank you, Hank, for doing that. But there is a bookshop.org page. It has uh, two books of each of theirs, so it kind of gives you a taste. Many of them have series. Once you click on one of their books, you know, you can then click on the author name is a hot link as well. And it'll take you to all the books that they've written. If you purchase through bookshop.org, you do help the book cougars and independent bookstores. 
stores. And we really appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, I also am hoping to catch on June 15th, the Women's Prize Virtual Short Festival is going on. And I just was talking about Claire Fuller's book. Now, last year, I tried to do this and I totally blew it because it's UK time. Mm-hmm. So I've got to get my clocks synchronized and hopefully catch that. So in the show notes, I'll put the time because I haven't looked at that yet. What about you? You must have some upcoming adventures since you're going gallivanting. I am. Yes. I'm finally going to head to Chicago to visit my mom, who I haven't seen since November of 2019 uh, due to the pandemic. I'm going to take a more Southern route So I'm going through, like I mentioned, Washington, Pennsylvania, and then Wheeling, West Virginia. And then I am stopping in Yellow Springs, Ohio. The birthplace of Emily Fine. Yes, there will be plaques (laughs) in the future that state that historical marker. (laughs) Green-eyed envy that I'm not taking you there. I'm very sad about that, but I'm glad you're going. Well, I'm really looking forward to it and I'm super excited to meet somebody who I've never met before in real life, who I've considered a friend now for going on five years almost. My my bestie from kindergarten. Yeah. She's Should been we a guest a bunch of times on the <laughs> podcast. So regular listeners could probably guess that it's Shuli Kaywood. Yeah. Shuli said she's going to give Chris a walking tour of all of my old haunts in Yellow Springs. <laughs> now, y'all, I'm a total nerd, so don't think that's going to be the most exciting tour. But I was born and raised there. So there you well, go. I'm really looking forward to it. And I'm happy that Shuli's trip to visit her folks coincides because she lives in Tennessee. Yeah. So we just happened to be there at the same time. Well, I'm going there because Shuli's going to be there, but I'm really excited to check out Yellow Springs. Because as I've said, when we were talking with Chris Tabbitts, it just sounds like such a great town. It is. Yeah, it's a great little bastion in Ohio. So I hope you enjoy it. I can't wait to see the pictures of the two of you together. (laughs) (laughs) Now, what about upcoming reads? I have two books on my list. I'm kind of way late to the party on these, but this is for my book club coming up. I am planning to read Gilead and Home by Marilyn Robinson. Those are the first two books in what they refer to as her Gilead series. I've been told that the audiobook is fantastic. I have Gilead, the, you know, the paper copy, so I'm going to start with that, but I might get the audio as well. And we're actually reading Home for Book Club, but since I haven't read Gilead, I'm going to start there. Great. Oh, cool. I look forward to hearing about that. I've only read Housekeeping. Me too. From her, so yeah. Yeah, which I really liked. These people just wax poetic about this series. And I think it was recently Oprah's pick was all four of them or something like that. Yeah, I think I saw that floating around the internet. What about you? Well, I'm going to be dipping into a biography The past couple of years, I've tried to read one biography of a woman writer. And this year, I'm going to be reading Rebecca Harding Davis, A Life Among Writers by Sharon M. Harris. Full disclaimer, Sharon Harris is a former professor of mine and a current friend. So I do know the author, but I want to learn more about who Rebecca Harding Davis was. And I started reading the, like the preface a little bit. And Harris talks about how She'd written a previous book 
on Rebecca Harding Davis in 91, I think it was. This book came out in 2018. And just how much we didn't know about Rebecca Harding Davis and all the stories that had been repeated that weren't necessarily true about who she was and what her life was like. She did spend the first part of her life in Wheeling, West Virginia. But after she you know, became a world-renowned writer, she was socializing in the highest echelons of Philadelphia and New York life. Her daughter married a British royal. I mean, I can't wait to dig into this biography. I don't know if I'll be able to finish it by the next episode, because I think there's 15 chapters, and I might try to do the chapter a day route to doing it. Probably depends on, you know, sometimes when you travel, you get reading time, and sometimes you don't. You yeah. know, it just depends on if you get that kind of morning or evening time. Yeah, I think I will, because I, you know, with this trip that I'm going on, it is the focus is on hanging out with my mom. So I'm not going to be running around visiting this time. Sorry, Chicago friends. I'd love to see <laughs> you, but mom's the priority. So I know I'll have reading time and. Good. Yeah, looking forward to it. I can't wait to see you out in the world. <laughs> well, everyone, coming up, we have our conversation with Jenny from the Reading MV podcast about braiding sweetgrass. So glad we read this book. Yes, me too. Thank you so much for proposing it, Emily, because you did. You were the one behind this pick. I think you came up with the idea of reading the Native American poetry anthology that we read with Jenny as well. And that's on her episode of the Reading Envy podcast that actually dropped on June 1st. So we'll put a link in the show notes to that. Highly recommend you go listen. I think we were all a little bit, I don't know if leery is the right word, but you know, not sure how reading a poetry anthology would go. But I think the conversation was really interesting on that as well. Yeah, I enjoyed that very much. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, And they were great complimentary books to each other. Indeed. Well, this is our second joint read along with Jenny. And I think it's going to be an annual tradition going forward. Yeah, let's hope. Yeah. Fingers crossed. We didn't do it last summer, but we did it the, the year before. spring summer before. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. When we read a Willa Cather novel and Gone with, Gone the, with the, the Wind. wind. Yeah. yeah. Which was a chunkster. <laughs> Yeah, another big book summer. <laughs> yes, reading. exactly. Yeah. So uh, keep, keep uh, sending your big book summer reads to us and enjoy this conversation with Jenny. We're so excited today to have with us Jenny Colvin from the Reading Envy podcast. We've been doing dual read-alongs with each of the podcasts, and on ours, we're reading Braiding Sweetgrass, Indigenous Wisdom, Scientific Knowledge, and the Teachings of Plants by Robin Wall Kimmerer. This was originally published in 2013, but it is having a huge surge, and in 2020, landed on the New York Times bestseller list and is being read by many, including us. One of the theories is that it's just word of mouth that is drawing this book into more people's hands or people who've read it are placing it into other people's hands and saying, you have to read this book. And now we're all going to do that to you listeners because we all feel that way, right? Yes. <laughs> Definitely. I feel like I waited so long to read it and now I'm wondering why. Why did I wait? <laughs> it was so good. Well, this one wasn't even on my radar until Emily told me about it when we were thinking about read-along books, because I had heard about the anthology 
that we talked about on Jenny's upcoming episode. And then she talked about braiding sweetgrass, and, and that's how I first learned about it. And I'm so happy I read it, too. I still have a little bit to go on the audio book, and I have a road trip tomorrow, so I know I'm going to be finishing it. Listeners, just so you know, um, that subtitle that Emily read, Indigenous Wisdom, Scientific Knowledge, and the Teaching of Plants, is exactly what this book is. It's a collection of essays that span various time periods in Robin's life where she talks about the meaning of plants from a native perspective and then also from a scientific perspective. It is just such a beautiful book. Uh, The stories are beautiful. Her writing is just fantastic. We had our Zoom discussion last night about the book, and someone said that sometimes the sentences were so beautiful that they had to keep rewinding and they almost forgot about the context because they were just so swept away in this, the words themselves. So if you want to pick this book up, obviously it's three or six thumbs up. Should we say here between the <laughs> <Sure>. three of us <laughs> and lots of listeners who met on our zoom and even folks who were on our Goodreads thread. I think Nancy said Goodreads only lets you give it five stars, but she would give it a lot more stars if it was available to do. So I definitely agree with that. What did you think, Jenny? Oh, yeah, definitely. I think this will be one of my favorite reads of the year for sure. I've started thinking about who could I give this to as a gift who I think hasn't already read it. I mean, when you start thinking that way, you know, it's a five-star read. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, And, you know, some people in the Zoom conversation that we had did say that it took a lot longer to read than they had planned. And I know I plan to read books in a certain amount of time based on the pages. I agree, even with the audio book, it was a little bit faster. But still, I did want to pause and think about things that Robin had just said. So it's one of those books that the content and the beauty of the language does force you to slow down in your reading. So don't expect to pick it up and just kind of whiz bang through it. It's one of those books that really makes you stop and think. I think part of that too is just, I felt like I wanted to be out in nature while I was reading it in between reading it because she's so inspiring and how she talks about it. And it makes you want to reconnect if you can. Yeah, Yeah. that's true. And it just makes you every time you are out, I mean, even if you just see a little tree, it makes you think about that tree and about the animals that are impacted by the tree and what the tree's doing for us as a species. I mean, so thought provoking from the littlest tadpole (laughs) to the largest tree. Someone in the group yesterday mentioned the video, I think it was Tina of her walking through the forest, giving a little tour And I went and watched that and it was just like the book where, you know, every little thing that you would just never even pay attention to and you would just walk right by and everything had a story and everything was connected to other things and had meaning in itself. It was really lovely. Yeah, and we'll we'll put a link to that in the show notes. I think, isn't it where she's um, walking around and doing a tour of moss and things like that, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Yeah, and it's right after the snow has started melting, which is not a time that I think most of us find a lot of, you know, nature. We think of spring or fall or summer. Right. Yeah, so it's really fascinating. Yeah, and so the essays too, I did wonder as I was reading them if she if it was written in a linear fashion or if these were essays she had been writing throughout time because sometimes I did feel a little confused about the time, you know, like 
what time it was in her life. I mean, not that it really mattered. But she takes you from experiencing some of her childhood and how she was raised and the impact of, like, for example, her grandfather being removed from his family. She's a Native American. But then she also takes you through the time of becoming a mother, becoming a professor, a mother who's now an empty nester, <laughs> you know, it covers a long span of her life. Yeah, it really does. And, and also history as well. She does incorporate history along with that because I think much like humans feel like we can separate ourselves from nature, which we can't, we also think we can separate ourselves from history, which we can't. I think maybe for some peoples, that's a little bit more immediate, especially for indigenous people who've been so decimated by colonial settlers coming in. I really appreciated that smoothness of how she incorporated so much. I think that's one of the reasons why it is a slow read, because there's so much in every sentence. And Emily, you mentioned uh, something that you said made me think about the essay, The Three Sisters, Mm -hmm. which is about the planting of corn pumpkins or squash Squash. and the beans, right? Right. And how these are often grown together in native communities because they are starch, protein, and really rich in nutrients. So she talks about how when the colonists first came and saw these gardens, they thought, wow, these Native American gardens are really messed up and just messy. They don't know what they're doing. When in fact, these three plants work so well together and they provide you with a diet that you can live on, actually. You know, one plant alone wouldn't cut it, but the three together are so well-rounded. I just really appreciated that because there is so much history involved And just looking at those three plants and their intertwined nature. Yeah, and she's a botanist. I mean, she has a PhD in botany. And she. some of the early essays talk about her journey to becoming a scientist and a female scientist in particular and not always being treated seriously because she was a female. So she really comes at these essays with an incredible breadth of knowledge, which is another reason they're dense. There's Latin words. <laughs> yeah, well, that's why the audiobook is so great because I don't speak Latin, nor do I speak, is it Potawatomi? Mm-hmm. That's heard people. So to get the pronunciation of both the Native American terms and the scientific terms was super helpful for me. Indeed. I thought it was interesting how she got so much pushback from her professors. And, you know, it seems like even her colleagues now are a little bit um, skeptical depending on where she's at. As if the knowledge that she comes in with is somehow taking away from the scientific knowledge. But I think she's shown time and again that it's both. Right. You can look at these plants from the two different perspectives and they don't conflict with each other. It's actually, they build on each other. And I was really fascinated by some of that work, especially the sweet grass specifically with her PhD student that was working on that for her dissertation. That's just going to stay with me, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And that was, that was such a cool chapter too, because she talks about even within the native American community, there were different opinions on how you pick sweetgrass. Some said you do it blade by blade and others are like, no, you take up the whole plant. Within that essay, there are some interesting findings that she learned and the different Native American tribes have learned now on how to best take care of sweetgrass. 
Yeah. And just harvesting in general, that harvesting is actually a good thing where sometimes it's not perceived that way in the wider population. She has a student who comes to do some research that gets a lot of pushback, partly because she's a female, but also because of what she wants to study. There's a lot of I mean, it made me think that, like, as much as science is supposed to be about studying and learning and discerning what the data suggests, that there is implicit bias, right, in scientists when they go to prove a point. Like, sometimes they already have the point they want to make, (laughs) whether they've done the research or not. So there's a, a study that she talks about, about how harvesting actually is good for the plant species, I loved that essay. This has been tying a lot to, I've been participating in this project and that's been hosted through Instagram. It's called Aaron and Danny's book club, but it's a different indigenous memoir every month. And so many of these authors talk about thanking the earth before they consume Mm. it of thinking of like the competitors for the fruit, like the bears, just like, thank your cousin bear, ask him not to eat you, tell him that he can have his berries and he'll take your berries. And it's just, it resonated so much with how she talked about the plants here too. So it's nice to see all those things connecting. Yeah. Chris calls those the synchronicity of reading, right? You know, when things cross over. Yeah, absolutely. Now, so on the, the other hand, One of the things that really struck me is the essay where she first starts talking about reclaiming the pond that is on her property that was becoming soil, practically. Her daughters wanted it to swim in, and she did as well. So, you know, as a botanist, she decides to apply her science and her native understanding of plants and is going at it. And it's just really a great essay. But one of the points she makes is that she had to kill things plants and and insects and and other creatures while she was reclaiming the pond for her own family and just what an important point that is is that i could be going off on a tangent here but just how that in the act of creation and reclaiming you do harm things and you have to make choices right which i appreciated that because it's not as simple as some people want to make it out to be Right. It's the complexity of us all trying to live here. Also, that's the other thing she talks about. As we harvest, we're not always harvesting for the good of the planet. How do you find the balance? And that pond was a microcosm of the greater earth. That's how I looked at it. But yet her writing, you know, she's a poet and she writes in such a tactile, sensory way. Like I could literally picture her hanging off the side of her kayak as she was pulling this thick grass out that's filled with tadpoles and other things and trying to make this pond something different because if you leave things alone just like if you don't weed your garden something will grow there it just might not be what you want right so the (laughs) same thing was happening in her pond and those scenes i thought were hilarious she does use a little humor as well throughout the book she talks about some other places that they kind of need to do that work it's like especially that lake in syracuse i don't even know if you can get that back Mm. And some of the work that some of the groups are doing that have finally convinced the government to give them their land back is really astounding. And I was very impressed that they were able to make progress at all because her descriptions of those places made them sound just dead forever. Yeah. 
Well, it does beg the question, right? Like, where have you crossed over where there is no turning back? And we did talk a little bit in our discussion last night about whether she leaves the reader with some answers to that question or whether you feel hope or hopeless. Did either of you have any feelings about that as you were reading? Well, I know that uh, I, I haven't finished it. I got the sense that some of the later chapters might be a bit darker, but I had a sense of hope because I think one of the messages is you have to start doing something. You know, even the smallest thing can make an impact. You might not be able to save everything, but you can save one thing in your own garden or your community. And I think that's just a really great message because I think so many of us get paralyzed with how huge the problems of our world are. But the truth is, if you do start with something, you'll at least start feeling a little bit more possibility, I think, that something can be done. I felt more positive than I did when I finished another book that Milkweed put out called Rising Dispatches from the New American Shore by Elizabeth Rush. That one is just straight depressing. <laughs> Beware. I mean, it's beautifully written too, but it's uh, it's incredible about the things that have been lost on the shore. I felt like Robin Wall Kimmerer really just is wanting people to engage with nature. Like even if it's not to be reparative of it, just to interact with it. And I loved hearing her talk about her students after she's shown them some of the plants or how they work together, what they look like before harvesting and how there were literally students who had no idea where things came from, or, I mean, these are college students. I mean, that's incredible. I think everyone should have like a basic knowledge of how things grow and where they come from, how things are harvested, what your food is made of, you know, mm-hmm. that would be a start. Oh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I remember one analysis I had read years ago that talked about McDonald's as an example of how it's helping to divorce children from their food source by having like the hamburger patch. If you remember that commercial where there's just like rows and rows of little hamburgers growing. Mm-hmm. As if hamburgers grew from the soil. Remember right. that? Yes. <laughs> but I think looking back too, and I mentioned this last night in the Zoom conversation, in the 70s, there was so much pollution and horrible situations in America's rivers where some of them burst into flame. They were so polluted, just wastelands. And so many of them have been reclaimed and are now fishable, or at least your skin won't peel off if you happen to step in it. There's always hope if we go after these problems and make them more known, you know, like Rachel Carson and the great impact that she had. People are saying that this book is going to have a tremendous impact like Rachel Carson's work, which is a sign of hope right there, I think. Yeah. And I think the fact that it is such a slow read also forces you to think about the world in a slower way. And and that's part of being engaged as well, right? I agree with what both of you are saying, that there's hope to be seen in all of that. Yeah. Well, and you know, to go back to what Jenny was saying about younger people being divorced and not understanding where things are coming from, Walkmer mentions that she has seen the change over her span of teaching that younger people are coming to programs to study because they've been inspired by TV shows as opposed to when she first started was the younger people who grew up hiking or camping with their parents and things like that, or they came from the farm and knew 
what they were in for a little bit, or, or they had a basic understanding, like Jenny was saying, of, of plants and, and how they grow and what different things look like. Yeah, I think part of the McDonald's thing too, Chris, was like kids didn't know that French fries came from potatoes. There's just like a complete disconnect from where your food comes mm-hmm. from. <laughs> I agree that I think if people can just get more in touch. And it's pleasing to me that she was having kids come to these programs with a desire to be part of the earth. She also talked about teaching at a school, though, where kids were kind of dialing it in and how frustrating that was as well. And I appreciated those early stories of her teaching career. And now she's ended up at Syracuse and I think is, I don't know if she's the head of the department, but she's kind of a fancy pants where she is now. And hopefully that's more fulfilling work for her. Well, as far as engaging in nature, I thought one of the ideas that came out of the discussion last night that isn't exactly in this book, but I feel like she would really endorse is that idea of nature journaling. I am so fascinated by this idea. I've flagged a bunch of videos and YouTube to watch. I mean, I just love that idea. Like I'm not an artist or anything and I don't do a lot of stuff outdoors, you know, for various reasons, but I could probably spend 10 minutes with a plant, Mm -hmm. just observe it, try to draw it. Yeah, (laughs) I just love that idea so much. Yeah, and I feel like I do that with the animal kingdom. I'm not sure that I do it with plants so much, you know, so I want to think about that more because I'm definitely fascinated by the movement around me. And I have all sorts of little critters and birds that I see every day. Out my bedroom window is a maple tree, and I've been watching it progress through the spring and go from nothing to bud to where the little helicopters are flying down everywhere to leaves. And if it's right in front of me, I feel like I'm really good. I'm not necessarily so good if I have to seek out the plants. Well, you're good at identifying poison ivy. (laughs) Yes, that I am. (laughs) If one has lots of bad experience with a plant, they get expert in that plant. (laughs) Well, I grew up tromping through the woods, gathering moss for like flower baskets. And I understand that her earlier book is about that. So I'm intrigued by that. I'm definitely going to go back and read that one. Yeah. um, Audrey last night recommended that to everyone. It's called Gathering Moss. And she said it's much shorter than this one, um, but she really enjoyed it and recommended it to everybody last night. Yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. I hope it's not going to say you shouldn't do that. (laughs) (laughs) Jenny has to make some reparations for all the mouth moss gathering of her youth. I will if I have to. I, don't, I always think of moss as being very regenerative, but maybe that's a misconception that I have. Yeah, I tried to take some that I, that was in our yard one time to put in my, is it terrarium? I always get mm-hmm. that word wrong. Yeah. Okay. But it never really worked out well. <laughs> You mean it didn't stay alive? Is that what you're trying to say? Yes, that is the other way to say that. I killed it. (laughs) Well, I wanted to talk about this one section she wrote about uh, that is all about the colors purple and yellow. Purple and yellow have always been my favorite two colors together. And I even made a baby blanket for one of my kids that was all purples and yellows. So I got to see them carry that around for years. I just thought I would read just a little tiny bit so that folks could get a feel for her writing style. So she's talking about the science of the eye. He was right about beauty being in the eye of the beholder, especially when it comes to purple and yellow. 
Color perception in humans relies on banks of specialized receptor cells, the rods and cones in the retina. The job of the cone cells is to absorb light of different wavelengths and pass it on to the brain's visual cortex where it can be interpreted. The visible light spectrum, the rainbow of colors, is broad, so the most effective means of discerning color is not one generalized jack-of-all-trades, cone cell, but rather an array of specialists, each perfectly tuned to absorb certain wavelengths. The human eye has three kinds. One type excels at detecting red and associated wavelengths. One is turned to blue. The other optimally perceives light of two colors, purple and yellow. The human eye is superbly equipped to detect these colors and send a signal pulsing to the brain. This doesn't explain why I perceive them as beautiful, but it does explain why that combination gets my undivided attention. I asked my artist buddies about the power of purple and gold, and they sent me right to the color wheel. These two are complementary colors, as different in nature as could be. In composing a palette, putting them together makes each more vivid. Just a touch of one will bring out the other. I just loved that. And it just shows like kind of the density of her writing and how she mixes science and art. Yeah, and in the audio version, her voice has such a warmth. You can Mm. hear the warmth and the humor and her enthusiasm and love come through. It's an audiobook I always want to go back to every time I'm in my car or doing tours around the house. I look forward to putting my earbuds back in just to hear her voice. Yeah, I looked for any excuse. Yeah, that was definitely something that almost everyone last night said was how good the audio was. Now, I haven't tried it yet, but I think I'll buy it just to have it because it feels like a book that you want to keep revisiting. Yeah, I mean, really, just so listeners know, it very much is a book of essays. So you can dip in to and just listen to an essay. And I think one person last night said that she kind of had to force herself to slow down and said, like, I'm going to read one or two essays a day and split the book up that way and really digest them. And they are very separate. Yeah, I think one of my favorites is Burning Cascade Head, the one about the salmon and how it's so important that the salmon travel inland, you know, either from being consumed and being spread that way, because that feeds the forest and how it's the you know the most rich forest the tallest trees but the way that she writes about it is just it's just astounding and i grew up in that region but she just captures it in a way i've never seen (laughs) yeah yeah it's interesting that she could write about different parts of the united states also right she covered some territory yeah that surprised me too i think just from her personal background i expected it to be a little bit more limited regionally Mm -hmm. But then she really talks about different ecosystems and everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had a misconception, I think, because it was published through Milkweed, which is that of Minnesota. I was like, oh, this is going to be all about Minnesota. And then I had that completely wrong. Does she talk about the limits of where sweetgrass, where it grows? I don't remember if it if she really did. Is it like a universal plant? I don't oh, remember yeah. her saying, talking about where it grows exactly. I do remember her saying it does not plant itself. It has to be intentionally planted by humans because it doesn't have seeds that blow in the wind. Gotcha. That's right. And sweetgrass is used to make baskets as well. So she talks about that a little bit. 
and the braiding of sweet grass and you can burn it just like people do sage burns people burn sweet grass i wanted to look into that actually because i'm a big fan of sage burns well somebody in the conversation last night said you can buy sweet grass yeah. online and yeah buy braids of it so I'm going to look into that. We also have a store here in Guilford that sells sage. And I thought, oh, I'm going to go look. Maybe they have sweet grass as well. Or maybe even one of the local health food stores. You know, we're definitely on a lot of native land here. So I'm curious if there is even some native sweet grass around. We'll we'll report back on that one. I should have done that research before we got on our conversation. (laughs) Well, Jenny also bought the beautiful anniversary milkweed anniversary edition of the book which is hardcover it's gorgeous it has some nice illustrations in it too which i really enjoyed yeah and it's smaller like i thought when it was hardcover that it might be one of those books that's really hard to read but because the size is not quite that bad it was still okay no no carpal tunnel (laughs) (laughs) no dropping it on your head as you fall asleep at night seriously (laughs) well do you have any other books that this reminded you of i have a few i know last year right around when the pandemic started i read the sound of a wild snail eating by elizabeth tova bailey and it's a much shorter book but it has that same effect of slowing the reader down and like focusing on the moment and like this little tiny snail and then i had just read this other book called sparrow envy field guide to birds and lesser beasts (laughs) and it's written by a clemson professor will former it's mostly poetry and lists but it's all about birds he's an ornithologist but he has that same kind of level of very deep observation and the poems are beautiful i got to the end and i started at the beginning again because I, I think after finishing this book, I was like, okay, I want more of that. Am I going to just have to keep rereading this book? <laughs> Which I think I'm willing to do. But it's nice to see how it connects to others. Do you have any that you think of? Oh, you know, one of the nature books I always think of when I'm reading another nature-focused book is um, Refuge by Terry Tempest Williams. That was one of the first contemporary nature-focused books that looked at the entwining of humans and nature. I read that one so long ago, and that was a book I was giving away all the time after I had read it. That one's about the Salt Lake, the Great Salt Lake, and how it was levels changing were affecting the the birds, flora and fauna, I guess. And (laughs) entwined with her mother's cancer. Yes. I mean, I definitely thought about Richard Power's book, The Overstory, which is a work of fiction, but it is all about trees and saving trees and the impact that we have had on trees and that trees have on us. And it's ironic because I did watch um, a video interview with Terry Tempest Williams, Richard Powers, and Robin Wall Kimmerer. Holy trifecta. (laughs) I mean, that... (laughs) was amazing. And it was through Harvard because Terry Tempest Williams was a visiting professor, I believe at the time. And so she kind of moderated the conversation. Wow, just an amazing conversation. I'll put a link in the show notes and a lot of crossover, obviously, in their writing and their areas of interest and vastly different backgrounds. I almost felt like I was intruding on them. (laughs) Very like deep conversations. I mean, you know, Terry Tempest Williams has written a couple memoirs, right? 
mm-hmm. Chris. Yeah. yeah. And she shared some really devastating news about her brother during the conversation. So you're right. It did kind of feel very internal, but they did ask questions of the audience at the end and some students asked questions and things like that. I think Terry Tempest Williams writes about her brother in her latest book, Erosion, but I don't think that was out Mm. at the time of that interview. So she's such an interesting person and how she processes everything through her writing and then shares it. If only we could all have that power. (laughs) And Jenny, did you read Erosion? I did. Yeah. I think I've read everything of hers, except for I'm saving the National Park one. You know how like when you really like an author, you don't want to read everything. <laughs> you got to hold back a little bit, right? <laughs> yes. Is it like under a light on your bookcase? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to, last thing I wanted to say is I think the two books we chose to read. So Jenny's podcast, which will air ahead of this one, we read When the Light of the World Was Subdued, Our Songs Came Through, edited by Joy Harjo and some other editors, which was a book of Native poetry. I think that it was such a great pairing to read these two books together. I'm so proud of us <laughs> for coming yeah. up with this yeah. combo. Yeah, and one of the things I was thinking about in this book, because she addresses the language issue to the people coming back to the language, back to the earth. And I felt like the poems followed that trajectory because you had the generation of people who had to learn English instead. And then you had the grandchildren of that generation who have kind of gone back to relearn, to bring it back. And that just reflected her philosophy of what we need to do with nature too, because they're intertwined. Right. Thank you, Jenny, for joining us on this double read along journey together. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the book Cougars with Chris Wallach and Emily Fine. We'll be back with another episode in two weeks. Until then, come chat with us on social media or on our Goodreads group. And if you'd like to contact us directly, email us at bookcougars at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone.